0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, as well as hitting the like button and the notification bell so you never miss a video. If you prefer audio format, search Gifted Performance on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting service, and subscribe today. Make sure you also rate and review the podcast, as that helps us out tremendously. Enjoy the podcast and stay gifted. Welcome back. Another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. I am in some straight-up ethereal lighting right now. That's today's $10 word. I don't know how to make it stop. I got these, like, skylights in my house that are, like, really cool most of the time. When it rains, terrible. When it sunshines on me, also not so great. But today's a special episode, not just because of the lighting, but because we have convinced someone to come back. Most people, it's one and done. We end the recording, we say, wow, you know, Matt, that was a great recording. How did you like it? And they just instantly hang up like, (laughs) oh, you know, must have been connection error or something like that. They're just out. Matt, good to have you back. Thanks for coming back.
1: Good to be back, man. Um, How are you? You've been busy? Some
0: national shows? Not Dom level busy,
1: but you've been busy? Not quite Dom level busy, but I've I've definitely been busy. Uh, I'm taking on clients every week, pretty much. Um, nice. And then, you know, with the courses and everything else, it, it's it's keeping me busy. That's for sure.
0: Dom, are you looking down at your phone or are you taking quick micro naps?
2: No, <laughs> I took a picture of Matt.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no, I just got really creepy and just took a picture of Matt without his consent. Do <laughs>
2: you want to sign my
0: disclaimer? <laughs> <laughs> I'll oh, make him oh, sign the 25. social media disclaimer. That's kind of paying
1: for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Paul, are you, are you alive? Not well, but alive. I'm fucking great, man. Good. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Came at me. I love it. Okay. You. I'm a little sleepy. Okay. So today, uh, you know, if you watched the last episode, which I'm assuming, I'm assuming you did, it was quite a banger. People really seem to enjoy that one, Matt. They, uh, a lot of shares on that one, a lot of views, a lot of a lot of comments from people awesome. uh, that they really enjoyed it. So number two, at the end of the first one, we said we were going to do this, um, and we're going to bust some myths today. But what I wanted to circle back to, and maybe plug on the front end, is how Masterclass number one went. So how how was it received? How did you have fun with it? What did you What did you gain? What did you learn? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit on the front end of this episode about the next one that you guys have going.
1: Yeah, so it was awesome, man. I mean, obviously, being my first time in that big of an audience, we had, I think, 25 or 26 attendees. Um, and, uh, you know, once we got it rolling, it was just very smoothly done. Um, we did Q&As throughout the process. Um our biggest thing was, you know, we had so much information to give. We ended up going over an hour long. So it was supposed to be two hours. And then with the Q&As, it ended up being three hours long. Um, but we covered a shit ton of topics. And, you know, my and um, my partner Gentry's goal with that course was that you left feeling that you mastered that topic. And so that was the important thing, you know, not not a time frame or anything like that. And I do feel like we, we truly accomplished that by the end.
0: I'm, I'm interested to hear what, what were like the biggest questions, maybe the most recurring questions that you got from people just about the top, because the topic itself was exclusively cortisol, correct?
1: Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, different types of stressors and different type of symptoms you'll, you may notice, because most people say I'm not stressed. So we had to like show them that not everything is a perceived stress. Um, and then we talked about, you know, um, the hormone adaptations and stuff like that. We showed them some examples of blood work, uh, of different red flags you might have of somebody who's dealing with stress and inflammation. So we had some questions about that type of stuff. Um, questions on how to mitigate these things. We we did two different uh, portions. We did uh, how to mitigate stress for a lifestyle client, and also how to mitigate stress and stuff for a contest prep client. Um, and that that's where a lot of questions came in with regards to contest prep, because obviously you still want to try to lose weight, but you're also trying to limit stressors as much as possible. So we we talked in detail about that, um, and I'd say that's probably where most of the questions came in. And then, of course, we had some questions about supplementation style stuff. Everyone wants that, the the supplement answer, you know?
0: I heard you mentioned lifestyle change. I heard you mentioned maybe diet less, do less cardio. But hear me out. What supplements can I take instead? Right. That's got to be the biggest frustrating piece for you. Like, I just gave you the 95% of the equation, and you're just skipping over that. Let me get that. Let me get that last 5%.
1: It's hard. You know, we we can all we we all get into that mindset, you know, one way or another that we're we're looking for that that quick answer, that easy answer. Um, But, yeah, it's just reminding people that there's a lot more to it than than just throwing, you know, a new supplement in the mix.
0: Now, what can everyone expect on the second one? Because the second one is all about reading blood work, correct?
1: Yeah. So a, a little bit different of a topic. And, and, you know, I, we had multiple topics that we were willing to do. And we actually did a poll online to see what people were most interested in next. And, you know, most people voted for blood work. I think I myself had like two, 150 to 200 votes on blood work. So we chose to do that one. And then as we started getting going with it, we realized this is a shit ton of information again. And we don't want to go over. So we split up into two parts. Uh, part one is going to be a little bit more generalized. It's just kind of going top to bottom of a comprehensive lab work. Um, your normal ranges versus optimal ranges and and kind of differentiating the two between that. Um, explaining what each little thing is and what it, what it actually means to be, um, you know, out of that range. Um, and then we're probably going to touch a little bit on Ways to mitigate certain things, um, you know, elevated liver enzymes and stuff like that, cholesterol issues, um, little things like that. And then part two will be more focused on bigger, bigger applications such as hormone imbalances, um, high inflammation, you know, pre-diabetes and insulin resistance, that type of stuff it's so, a question know, for the entire group. It's going to be beneficial, but the first one's going to be more of introducing people to lab work, and the second one will be a lot more in-depth. Um, and I don't want to say that to steer people away from, you know, part one, because I do think most people need that. You know, when, when we think about the general consensus of what competitors look at for lab work, most people know AST, ALT, and testosterone. You know, that, that's like the the three that they know. Maybe maybe some people have an understanding of the lipid panel, but that's, that's kind of pushing it from there.
0: Does my liver work? Do my balls work. <laughs> yeah. A competitor checklist. <laughs> that's One it. and two right there. Yeah. So here's kind of a question for the whole group that I've been thinking about lately because, you know, I see, and maybe it's just the people that I've followed recently, but I see a lot of people, coaches in particular, saying, you know, send like, advocating for their clients to send blood work to them. You know, your physician isn't going to be able to interpret this correctly. Where do you guys draw that line of like interpreting blood work to where you're not overstepping your boundaries and doing the job of someone who maybe has MD after their name? Where is that line for you? Cause I think it's pretty murky for some people. Some will say, I'll look at it. I'll advise you. Others are like, send it to me and only me don't ever go to the doctor. I can fix you all myself. You don't need doctors anymore
2: uh i think i think it probably like my doctor is really well versed so like he i feel like if you have a doctor who is versed in athletics you might have a better chance of um being able to have them interpret it as well Um, just because like we know there's markers that you know are elevated Um, in athletes that aren't usually elevated in like normal population. Um, You know, and then like even my doctor, like he'll suggest not training before blood work a couple days because he knows that that can throw off markers. But then again, like there's some, you know, GPs that just have never worked with an athlete, don't understand these things. you know, and like, uh, like I have an example of a client who um, had a high cholesterol uh, and it was just instantly, let's put you on Lipitor, but in reality it was post prep, um, you know, other things were in the equation and it was more along the line. That's, that's where I would like to step in and suggest, hey, why don't you follow some sort of health protocol for six, seven weeks? then get this redone and i guarantee you probably aren't going to need lipitor yeah so um i feel like i feel like you kind of have to vet the the physicians um history on working with athletes specifically um and, you know and then like you know there's so many things that throw off blood work too like not being hydrated enough beforehand can raise hematocrit falsely you know, we know it affects hemoglobin, all those things. And I guess those are all something that you want to make sure the physician understands without insulting them, of course. But, you know, at the end of the day, they are MDs. They're a lot more, you know, a lot more knowledgeable than the majority of us. But there are parts of it where it's kind of just checking off a list to them. Because I've seen it multiple times where it's like, oh, you're, you're, TSH is normal no bro 0.9 is not normal just because it is in this range of normal doesn't mean it's normal but that's why it's hard to in my opinion it's hard to gauge that because I have a really good doctor um who knows all those things but then there's some where I've came into contact with and I'm just like man you're like your doctor thinks this is normal (laughs)
1: I think a big part of that, too, is, you know, I I try to remind people and, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm i not talking down about doctors whatsoever. Uh, I agree with Dom. I I like to hear their perspective and then kind of give my own perspective and, and almost combine the two. But like you said, it definitely depends on, you know, their experience with athletes. But also keep in mind that as the athletes coach we have a much better idea of what's going on in the background than this doctor who's literally just looking at a paper. doesn't know anything about the person. Um, e- even to the point of, you know, the person just got out of a contest prep. So there's going to be things off. Um, but I think it's also important to remember, like with to Dom's point about the normal levels, um, doctors are very busy people and their main, their number one job is to keep us alive keeping us alive is very different than keeping us optimized. And so that that's actually a big part of what we talk about in, in this next course too, is the difference between optimal ranges and normal ranges because doctors don't have enough time to dedicate to every single person like, okay, this is how we're going to optimize X, Y, and Z for you. You know, they just don't want you to die.
3: Yeah. Paul, well, where's, that, where's that line for you? Well, for me, I I like to be very careful because we have a certain scope legally that we're not supposed to cross into, you know? So, I mean, luckily, I haven't had a ton of situations of like, you know, scary blood work. But let's say something does come back scary. Like, I'm always like, hey, like, we may try this or do this. But like, also, you should go see your doctor and see if you need to see a specialist or get some sort of follow up. And then, you know, I'll be like, hey. In uh, four to eight weeks or however long, we're going to redo some blood work. But yeah, definitely try. I I remember that it is not our job to diagnose and, you know, try and fix certain things, you know. So, uh, but you're right. It is tough with doctors. And, you know, I've had situations where a client has gotten blood work and, you know, maybe uh, I think that their thyroid protocol with their doctor could be improved. And I'll be like, Hey, um, mention this to your doctor, see what he thinks. And, you know, a lot of times it works out and the doctor's like, yeah, we can try a little more T4 or whatever. And then they come back and things are better. So.
1: Yeah. And All I, right, think, um, I, I wanted to add in there that, you know, I, I, like Dom has, um, you know, his doctor that he trusts a lot. I have my functional physician, so, so to Paul's point, if there are things that are you know more than just the the normal stuff that I see, I usually refer to him at, 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 from a from an MD standpoint as to hey hey doc, how alarmed should we be about this type of stuff? And if I already don't have an explanation for it, he can usually help me out. Um, but but even to that point, you know, if there is a disagreement with doctors about good example of the thyroid protocol when it comes to medications I'm not qualified to be medicating someone so at that point I say look you know I think you should go for a second opinion and I set them up with my doctor who I know I'm very you know in line with and so that's kind of how I approach that type of situation but we definitely we need MDs involved you know there's at no point to your To what you originally said, Ryan, at no point should someone be like, disregard doctors. You never need a doctor again. I got this. That's that's The year is
0: 2013. I'm venturing to the UCF Health Clinic (laughs) for some routine blood work. My AST and my ALT come back in like the 50 to 60 range. The doctor looks at me like I'm actually going to pass away at any moment. And he says, are you using any any drugs and I made an admission I told him you know I was using oxandrolone at the time in my younger years you know 10 lashes for using illegal drugs back in the day I was taking and I told him you know taking 50 milligrams of anivar and he looked at me like his world had just come down around him and he said is that weekly and I said no that's daily and he writes it down scribbles it really quick bolts out the door comes back he's like I've scheduled you blood work, another round of blood work. I've scheduled you an ultrasound for your liver. I've scheduled, I've written you a script for this, you know, over the counter, you know, you got to go get it as soon as possible. We have to get, we have to see these numbers come down as soon as possible. And I was like, Oh my God, like I am legitimately going to die. I think I called my mom and I was like, something's wrong with my liver. I think he mentioned like hepatitis or something. I think I might have hepatitis. I think I killed myself. I think, I'm doomed. Went home, did some Google research. I was like, oh, training elevates liver enzymes. I called the doctor and I was like, hey, I'm going to take three days off from training. I'm going to come back in and I think my enzymes will be down. And he told me under no circumstance would those (laughs) levels come down. There was not a fucking chance in hell that those numbers were going to come down. And I said, doc, I know I have hepatitis. I know I'm passing away. I've already, I got my will. I got, you know, three people that I think will write me a really good eulogy. Took my three days off. Went black, went back. Got my blood work, liver enzymes back in the normal range. And wow. he was like, "This is this is a medical like a medical miracle. Like this doesn't happen. Like no one comes back from an AST of fifty two. It's impossible." And I was healed by the hand of God. That yeah, was my experience. I'm
2: surprised that I'm surprised a mm. CMP doesn't have a GGT test on it.
1: I'm surprised by that too. Because Can you explain a- that for people who might a- not know
2: and AST and ALT like yeah they're very particular to the liver but other pieces of tissue give those off
1: and yeah, GGT is, is more, a more accurate scope of how your liver is actually doing
2: yeah like i'm like even like a Cystatin C like i'm surprised those things are not on oh hang on i got somebody at the door
0: uh oh it's charlie
1: mr He's us.
0: All right. Well, let's get into some of the actual questions, some of the myths today. So these are some of the things that I've seen kind of floating around the Instagramosphere of myths that I think kind of fall into your scope um, of things that you deal with on a daily basis. The first one that I see quite a bit, and it has really kind of like skyrocketed in popularity. I think some big name coaches have started talking a lot about um blood glucose, monitoring your blood glucose and your insulin sensitivity. And then kind of the pushback from that is that individuals who are lean and highly active, so people that we would consider like bodybuilders, they stay relatively lean year-round, some not as much as others, um, and they're physically active, you know, resistance training 90 minutes, six, seven times a week, doing some cardio. So the pushback is individuals who are physically active And lean don't need to worry about monitoring their blood glucose or their insulin sensitivity because those are just going to naturally be in a normal range.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, obviously, I think it it might be safe to say that a leaner individual is less likely to have blood glucose dysregulation compared to an obese person. But with that being said, you know, the the saying don't judge a book by its cover (laughs) Uh, you know, comes full circle here because um, there's a lot more involved with blood glucose regulation than how much body fat somebody has. You know, stress and inflammation are major drivers of glucose dysregulation. And a lean person can, can have stress and inflammation just as much as, you know, an obese person. Obviously, an obese person can have more because of their obesity, but plenty of lean people, you know, if their circadian rhythm is off, if their sleep schedule is bad, excuse me, they're dehydrated, they're under recovered, all of those things can affect um, blood glucose and insulin sensitivity. Um, and, you know, me myself, I run into a lot of these functional cases where there's this phenomenon of people who Stay lean um, and look in great shape. Like they look like they're competing right now. They're in such great shape um, and they can lose weight. They can build muscle. The exterior is perfectly fine, but the interior is truly falling apart. They have multiple autoimmune disorders. They have bacteria overgrowth in their gut. Their limbs are turning blue. They're basically diabetics. Um, you know, these things are, are happening to lean individuals all the time. So we really can't just base it off of the exterior like that. Um, and, and with that being said, you know, there, there's been research shown that even lean people, the guys and girls who can stay lean year round, doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't accumulating fats. They might be accumulating less subcutaneous fat but they might be accumulating more visceral fat. And so the fat is still accumulating. And, and so, again, we can't just judge by... Just because a guy has abs, we can't say, oh, it, he's got good insulin sensitivity.
3: You know? Yeah, well, visceral fat is uh, particularly troublesome. I just want to throw... I, my, my sort of thing with the my pushback for the insulin thing and or, uh, blood glucose monitoring is that a lot of people... We'll just get labs, right? like three months, six months, whatever. And fasting blood glucose is a little high. Fasting insulin is a little high. And that's it. They just, people have gotten so myopic about it and they freak out and there's a bunch of fear mongering and they're like, we have to fix all this shit. And it's like, it's one set of lab at like one time point in your life. Like hemoglobin A1C was fine. It's like maybe get a few sets of labs before we freak out and start changing things. Um, cause you know, and, and labs make mistakes. I had a buddy go get a lab and, um, his fasting glucose was 300 and something. I was like, that is alarming and troublesome. Uh-huh. This is really weird though, cause you're really lean. I was like, you should get a follow up lab, a couple of them. They both came back at like 80, huh. 83, you know, like labs make mistakes.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And, um, you know, that that's why I think, Monitoring it consistently like obviously you can't monitor their facet insulin their hemoglobin a1c but you know tracking facet glucose and post-workout glucose and even just um glucose one and a half two hours after meals you have a pretty good idea of how their body is handling things um and obviously to, to paul's point it If they're making progress and we're just seeing numbers slightly elevated, like insulin's a little bit higher than normal, their facet glucose is a little bit higher than normal, that's not something that I'm going to take major time to address immediately, Um, especially if their physique is improving. But if we have someone who has come through a couple coaches and they can't lose fat no matter what they do, and they're actually showing, you know, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with me? then it might be something worth addressing. Absolutely, dude. And uh, my, my pushback,
3: too, is a lot... Because, I mean, there are a lot of coaches these days that, like, one set of blood work, one set of bad numbers, and they're, like, immediately, they're, like, use my discount code for REVIVE. You know, like, and just load them up. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So I think that's a good segue right there, is that, like, when people do get those bad labs back, it's immediately... The supplement push right it's so if we so if we rule let's rule out things that have like a really big impact here like the pharmaceuticals things like metformin let's let's completely rule out metformin here and just look at the purely over-the-counter side of things um, I think GDA's uh, glucose disposal agents are very popular supplements yeah. um, the jury's kind of out there though on what the impact of those actually is long term um, I'm interested to hear is that something that you have your Uh, Clients use case by case basis. Everyone kind of uses it to help out. Um, What's your opinion there on supplements?
1: Case by case. And and to your point, you know, it it comes down to, again, finding out why why their insulin sensitivity is, is off. You know, if they've just been bulking for six months, then it's just time to stop bulking. You know, uh, if it's a matter of them getting four hours of sleep every night, well, then a GDA ain't gonna fucking help, and neither is metformin, for that matter. You need to fix your sleep schedule. So it's it's usually addressing the root causes, but obviously, you know, something like a GDA can be can assist in that process of improving things. Um, where I where I kind of lean towards those the most is if I see acid insulin is very elevated. Like we know for a fact that they are insulin resistant. That would be when I really implement something like metformin plus GDAs just to get the process moving a bit quicker. Um, But most of the time it's going to be lifestyle adjustments over over supplementation. Um, And, you know, I think there's been some research shown that GDAs don't always necessarily help the situation. You know, some of them are insulin mimedex. so they mimic insulin. And so some, uh, I, I believe in some forms, GDAs can actually store fat uh, from carbohydrates just as much as they you know, replenish glycogen in the muscle. So it's not always as simple as just like, take this GDA and you're gonna be good. So
0: I'm not sure if it was revived supplement. Um, who, so here's a question. Have you guys seen the ads for Revive? Where it's like obvious that someone else wrote the caption for them. It's like here's the supplement, and here's how it works, and it's like this big long thing about like how all the various ingredients work. And it's like you didn't write that. Like I'm not sure that you can even spell your name. I don't think that you wrote this caption. I read one of them that was like uh, this is like my favorite one that I heard about GDAs. It was like it was like you ingested it and it like makes the carbs go away.
1: And I was like that's it. You nailed it. It yeah, just <laughs> it just makes them go away. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of different products are, are coined like car blockers, and it's like, what the fuck is a car blocker?
0: You ever heard a uh, you know the comedian Cat Williams?
1: Yeah.
0: He had a uh, he had like something about like fat blockers. Like it's in the back of your throat, and it's like, nope, not in here, not today. But those those fat blockers were the funniest, like Olestra, because it just like wouldn't let the fat digest, and then you would just like shit out straight oil. And people that were was, like,
1: "That was the um, what was that peanut butter that uh,
0: the nut
2: the Professor Nuts."
1: Yeah, that that was yeah. their whole spiel. With that was like zero calorie peanut butter because you just shit it out. <laughs> and it's like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs>
0: like those Alestra commercials came on. They're like, we put this in potato chips and it's like side effects include oily flatulence. Like, you can't sneak in oily flatulence that you got to announce that from the start. Cause that's bad. No one wants that. No one wants canola oil in their drawers at the end of the day. Uh, Dom, anything you wanted to add on, you know, blood glucose monitoring that you've seen um, maybe some supplements around it, ridiculous claims around it, anything like that? You're on mute, by the way.
2: Uh, no, this guy's going crazy right now. Um,
0: Charles.
2: No, not too much. Matt pretty much nailed it pretty well. Um, but, like, I've used, like, I take, I take metformin every day. I do um, too. I take it every night before bed. Uh, it's helped control a lot of my stuff. I, I would normally run higher blood fasting glucose, even if I was super dieted. Like, I'd still run, like, an 80 in the towards the end of prep.
0: Um, oh, here's a, here's a, here's a follow up question for you that everyone can kind of attack. What are, what are some of the cause people may not know this. What are some of the side effects that like uh, the bad things that can happen if you do allow glucose um, or insulin to run high for extended periods of time, if you allow glucose and insulin to basically run high unchecked.
1: Well, you can become a diabetic. That's kind yeah. of bad. That's bad. <laughs> um, the, it, the excess insulin floating around in your body. Yeah. It's, pretty much going to prevent fat loss and you're just going to be storing fat throughout the day. Um, And you also, I think, will have much higher amounts of inflammation because of that as well. Um, I I think also, you know, I'm starting to see a lot of situations of hyperinsulinemia where people have, you know, too much insulin and then um, whether it's a stress response or a response to eating food, they then go hypoglycemic and crash throughout the day at random bursts. bursts. And, you know, for whatever reason, people in the fitness world think, oh, this is because I'm just so lean and my metabolism is so great right now. But in reality, it's like, well, no, you have some major glucose and insulin issues going on in the background, you know.
0: That's a that's an interesting parallel to draw right there. I'm so lean right now, my metabolism must be so high, right? No, those two don't exist at the same time, friend.
1: Yeah, they're like excited that they're going hypo five times a day, and like (laughs) they're not even recognizing that they're probably on their way to being, you know, type one diabetic in the next couple years.
2: Well, and then some of those people try to fix it themselves with like self-prescribing like lantis or or like a longer you know something like that and then and then some of them do end up becoming pretty much diabetic because of that
1: yeah yeah well another big one is um you know some people think they they like mask it with the with the keto diet And, and so they're like as long as i don't eat carbs i never go hypo and it's just like well Clearly, there's a reaction going on, and you should probably address that and not just avoid it for the rest of your life. Well, and that's kind
3: of when when you look into, uh, like, diabetes and type 2 diabetes and stuff, a lot of people think that it's carb-driven. But actually, there's an accumulation of basically partially metabolized fat. You don't have all the tools that you need to complete full uh, metabolization of fat i guess so those byproducts accumulate in the cell and interfere with other things and so i mean that's like one thing i like to consider whenever uh there's a situation where it's like okay like maybe fasting glucose is getting a little high or maybe fasting insulin is getting a little high like most of us sit on our ass all day long outside of training and it's like hey do we have time to like maybe go for like 20 minute walks in the morning can we like or maybe just a little bit of cardio post workout can you like just try to move a little more over the day like instead of getting 2000 steps a day can we aim let's start small and add 2 or 3000 on top of that and then keep trying to push it up cuz there is some research too showing like how how much uh metabolically more unhealthy people are when they uh fall below a certain uh range of steps or whatever and how bad they are at uh you know, um, just using fat for fuel and training. Even was it, people. uh, was it yeah. that
0: Ben house podcast I sent you where they were talking about like healthy weight, metabolic disorder people?
3: I think they did. They did mention it there. I was looking at some stuff the other day too.
1: Uh, that I, I, I agree with you, Paul, and that's, you know, that's a great point that I completely didn't touch on, but you know, that going back to the, the question about, you know, GDAs and stuff. It's been scientifically proven that a 10 to 15 minute walk after meals is more beneficial than metformin, GDAs or any other type of, you know, uh, supplemental, uh, you know, thing for insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. So that's that's something that I do incorporate a lot is, like you said, you know, a fast walk. I take, I do a fasted two mile walk every morning um, just to kind of get outside and get in the sunlight. Um, but I'll have people do walks po- after meals throughout the day too. Um, it, not only to help with you know the the um, the blood glucose thing, but just to your point, just being more active. If they work a nine to five at a desk and they're only getting in two, three thousand steps a day, simply cranking that up to six or eight thousand can make a pretty big difference.
0: Huge, wow. yeah.
1: Because it's super. I mean, when you think about it, man. Like most
3: people like they commute to work, they sit at a desk all day, they commute back, maybe they work out for an hour or two, and then they come home, make dinner, sit around and watch TV, go to sleep, and it's like, wow, you didn't move very much for like 22 out of the 24 hours in that day.
0: <laughs> and even even the resistance training section of it is such a small piece of activity because it's, you know, it's 20 sets, maybe if they're doing like a hard workout, you know, 10 reps, like, okay, how much total work have you done? You've done what? Twenty minutes, maybe. If each set took That's you sixty seconds apology. to complete, yeah. Especially if a, set,
1: doing machine like isolation machines and stuff. Yeah, you we're know? not even doing full body. Uh, full I think people hour. overstate
0: overstate the protective nature of just resistance training on its own in an effort to kind of like circumvent the fact that they need to do some sort of cardiorespiratory training movement as a whole.
1: Yeah, just because they no, don't want to do it. And to Paul's point, you know these people are so sedentary every day. And something that's really gotten on my nerves in the past year with with COVID and stuff. Now they do, um, you know, grocery delivery service, and you can like pick up outside the store. And I think about it all the time. I've said this to my girlfriend. I've said like, you know, these people shopping for groceries might literally be the most activity that some people do all day. And now they're yeah. taking that away. So they're fifteen 1,500 they steps. Right. Now they can't even walk with a cart and, and, you know, pick out their vegetables. It's just, we're creating such a lazy uh, sedentary. Yeah, they're, not,
0: nah, they're not getting vegetables. They're not getting
3: vegetables. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not organic think Oreos. they are buying vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that shit is so tempting. But another thing uh, to throw out, too, is like... <laughs> Paul's like, I
0: really like, use like, that all the time. That's my I favorite. Know, I, I
1: love grocery <laughs> delivery.
0: He's the grocery right. delivery. Paul's like, oh, it's so tempting. I just want to use it,
3: <laughs> dude. Yeah, I, I see it whenever I see Amazon, and I'm like, I wonder if they have fun cereals. And it's like, live to your house in less than two hours. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> um, but I can't justify it yet. But anyways, uh, your because even your heart when you don't uh, move, like your heart works harder all day long because there's the the muscle pump which returns venous blood flow. You know. Oh. So, I mean, even just for cardio protective reasons, and, and even if you're not actually doing cardio cardio, you right. know, and you're just
1: lightly walking like that right. helps a lot in itself. I think Stan Efferding was one of those first people to really push that, at least in the fitness community. You know, he came out with a vertical diet and he started really pushing the walks and talked about how in – um in um, in India that that's a big thing um, I can't remember the name of it but they do walks after every meal and that they're significantly healthier people their cholesterol levels their their insulin resistance all that stuff is significantly better and they live longer lives in comparison to Americans and he was just putting a lot of um, emphasis into those those walks throughout the day
2: yeah his thing is you, you take a 10 minute walk after every meal you
0: eat that's it. Yeah. And it might not be anything magic in the actual duration of the walk post meal. It's just right. that you're accumulating more activity throughout the day. So if you're having six meals, you know, you're getting sixty minutes of walking in for the day.
3: Right. And not only that, but there is something to distributing exercise over a day
1: yes. for your health. Yeah. You know,
3: and, and there is research showing that uh just training for an hour block is not as good as Moving Ultimately. that around throughout the whole day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't even
0: think you don't even have to look outside of the United States for an example of the walking being a way to control body weight. You can look at cities where there's more of like a walking built into their lifestyle. Yeah, like I mean, this is like New York, Boston, where people yeah. are moving around more and you can just track overall weight trends for the entire state. And what you'll see is a lower average body weight. They might not are be healthier. Like- because of some other like, things that they do in their life in New York and right. these big cities. But yeah, at least they're maintaining a lower body weight. Did you well, guys just like, decide that.
2: to talk about me before like I, I stepped away? Yeah,
0: you it left, left and we like were like, all oh, right, let's shit talk Dom yeah, as yeah, much just, as gosh, possible. Shame, shame <laughs> it.
2: I do walk uh, more now because we have the house. Oh. I actually <laughs> have to go down up and downstairs. Downstairs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, But not only not only from like, you know, a weight loss and stuff... Uh, perspective but also just you know in the past year or two years now you know with the whole covid situation vitamin d became like a a much bigger topic with immune system health and stuff so just getting outdoors throughout the day and getting some natural vitamin d is obviously extremely beneficial for everyone's health Um, and also it's been i don't know if any of you guys uh follow the uh huberman uh, lab podcast, uh, but he actually did one um sometime last year where he talked about how sensory stuff in the eyes affects uh, cortisol and mood and stuff. And he talked about how progressive forward motion, just the, the act of actually moving forward en- enhances your mood and it makes you feel like you're more productive and more progressive. So that's know, one
0: that I had not heard.
1: When we even talk about you know, I have clients who have treadmills at home, and I'm like, yeah, that's great, but I'd really like you to get outside for that 10 minute walk and actually, you know, get some sunlight and get that progressive forward motion.
0: What's funny is Dom had Dom and I had uh, we interviewed a a World of Warcraft streamer on the podcast because he like kind of like crosses over between WoW and like fitness, Uh and he talks about this stuff. He calls it like doing your dailies. He's like. You know, you should be doing some sort of activity today every day, like walking, go out for a walk. Like you have to like socialize daily, get that interaction with someone else so you can get that like dopamine of like communicating with another person, like spend some time outside, get some sunlight directly on your skin. And I'm like, you like a bachelor's in exercise science or exercise <laughs> physiology or something. Or are you just like a World of Warcraft guy? Cause you're kind of, you're kind of spitting some hot fire right now in terms yeah, of like health improvement. Dude.
3: That's, like, the most responsible WoW player in the world. You remember when that game came out and, like, you were hearing about, like, babies dying of neglect because people (laughs) were just, like, play WoW for weeks straight or something? Yeah.
0: All right. We have hit one organ in the body. Talking about glucose. We're hitting that. We hit the pancreas. Let's move along to the adrenals. So, again, two very polarized sides of this argument here. Um, so, you know, I've heard people talk about adrenals can be ignored. They're adaptable. They downregulate and upregulate based on needs. So, you know, just ignore those and let them handle themselves. Um, I think the biggest piece of literature that everyone quotes, I see Alan Aragon post this all the time. And it is a systematic review of the literature and the title. I don't want to get the title wrong. I have it pulled up, so I wouldn't get it wrong because the title is hilarious. The I've never seen a piece of literature titled like this before. It just says adrenal fatigue does not exist. That is the, that's the entire title of the piece of the systematic review. So that's what the people on one side quote. And then others on the other side, um, I even have a client who has, does he have adrenal fatigue tattooed on his, he got like diagnosed when he was younger. So he got like adrenal fatigue tattooed down the side of him. So he would be on the other side where it's like, definitely need to worry about it. Definitely need to monitor it. Matt, yes. I'm interested to hear where you kind of fall. Probably neatly in the middle.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I actually suffer adrenal insufficiency myself. I've gotten multiple 24-hour cortisol labs done, urine and saliva tests, and my body does underproduce cortisol. I've seen a lot of functional athletes who are completely flatlined, not producing any cortisol, um, and obviously, I've seen the opposite. I've seen people overproducing. Cortisol significantly. So obviously, I, I do believe um, that it is a real thing. I think that you know people argue about the the actual verbiage and, and adrenal fatigue. They, you know a lot of people argue about that verbiage and like to. I think most people prefer to use the verbiage adrenal insufficiency. I don't really know that there's that much of a difference between those two <laughs> phrases, but. Um, I do know that people tend to go more towards the insufficiency side of things. Um, I think that's because when, when we talk about adrenal fatigue, people kind of tend to make it sound like a permanent thing, like you are fucked for life. Your adrenals are never coming back type of deal. Whereas with the idea of adrenal insufficiency, it's just showing that there's an, an adaptation has happened and now your body is underproducing cortisol, However, this can be remedied through, you know, lifestyle changes, time and stuff like that. For the most part, there, there might be people that actually need to be medicated with, with you know, exogenous cortisol or, or whatever they might medicate. Uh, but for the most part, it's the, the thing that we see with adrenal insufficient people is they've been they've either dealt with PTSD or trauma. Or they've had chronically high stress for so long, their adrenals have been producing exorbitant amounts of cortisol for so long that now it's underproducing. And so by calming them down and supporting that adrenal with some adaptogens and and stuff like that, you can bring levels back to a healthy range. So I think that that's where the discrepancy is, is, you know, nothing is necessarily finite. And that's the same thing with metabolic damage. You know, we stopped using that term metabolic damage and we started using the term adaptation because that's really what it was.
3: Yeah, I think uh, there's this pushback always happens, right? Because there's always, you know, uh, a term that gets started and a bunch of assholes talk about it that shouldn't be talking about it. Yeah. And then the more scientific people or more I guess people who are into the literature and that, that that type of evidence and such they're just like, well, this doesn't exist. This is not a medical diagnosis. This isn't a thing. And then it's like, well, but maybe like just because they're not at an extreme end that you can call it a disease state like Cushing's or something, like doesn't mean it doesn't exist and isn't something that maybe needs to be addressed and could be optimized a little bit. And like you said, not always through Drugs and, you know, or supplements, but also through lifestyle change, you know?
1: Yeah, I, you know, a lot of that can can just be to just too much accumulated stress, you know, or, or inflammation for that matter, be it one or the two. Um, so so improving those things. And just giving some support, whether it be, you know, minerals, vitamins, um, you know, a few things that I've used um, are adaptogens like cordyceps, mushrooms, um, lion's mane, you know, nootropics and stuff like that. Those things can, can help bring things back into a range. And now, I don't know if how familiar you guys have been with the, the newer supplements, but now with, you know, thyroid and adrenal supplementation, they have glandulars. Which are derived from like bovine glands, and it's more of a natural approach, so to speak. Um, you can't really use that with autoimmune cases, but in general population, they can be utilized to help boost that that production too. So I, I've used supplements like that that have adrenal glandulars in them, and I mean I noticed a difference right away, right away.
0: Yeah, when you're when you're looking at so let's say a client comes to you and you believe that they are suffering from adrenal insufficiency. Um, Are you just looking at that 24 hour cortisol test on blood work? Uh, What are some of the things that maybe stick out to you that make you say, all right, you know, this is most likely adrenal insufficiency.
1: Yeah. So um, we go over, you know, obvious symptoms and there's going to be a lot more involved than just the, the adrenal portion of it. Um, You know, the, the adrenals, thyroid, and reproductive hormones all kind of work in a trilogy. So when one thing is off, you're oftentimes going to see other things off. Um, we'll see the thyroid work harder and, and try to produce more thyroid because the adrenals are underproducing. Um, and we can see, you know, sex hormones be dysregulated because of that uh, underproduction as well. Um, the adrenals play a major role in glucose regulation. So very often, you know, to my point before, when a lot of adrenal insufficient people have um, high insulin and blood glucose dysregulations, those are most of the people that I see with the hyperinsulinemia where they're, um, they're crashing and going hypoglycemic throughout the day. Those are lower cortisol people that I see. So there's multiple things in play there that are kind of giving us an idea, but the 24 hour cortisol is a really good tool to show us, okay, this person is either not producing at all, all day in 24 hour period, or maybe they're underproducing in the morning, but overproducing at night. And so we call that a flop circadian rhythm where, you know, sometimes people who work night shifts and stuff can get into that where they're, they're spiking at nighttime and then crash in the morning, where it should be the opposite. Um, so in that case, that's not adrenal insufficiency. That's just a flop circadian rhythm. And we just have to work on changing their sleep habits and stuff.
0: Yeah. I wonder, wonder if I was when I was working security, working nights, working security, very stressful. I wonder if I had that flop circadian. I wouldn't I uh, wouldn't be surprised if I did.
1: Yeah, the, 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 coin, the, the coin term for that is the wired and tired. You okay. know, you're kind of you're, kinda, you're yeah. dependent on caffeine all morning and all day to get you through the day, but then you're exhausted at night, but your brain just doesn't stop going.
0: Yeah, that sounds, at, that, sounds that, that's about right.
1: the flop circadian rhythm.
0: Okay. All right. Number three for the episode. This one might be a little bit bigger one. Um this one is, uh, missing your menstrual cycle. So it's around the menstrual cycle. Um, last three to four months of prep, perfectly normal to miss your menstrual cycle and perfectly normal part of the process for it to take, you know, months on end after the show for it to come back. I've seen a lot of, a lot of coaches advocate this for this, tell this to their female clients, you know, Hey, losing your menstrual cycle is part of the process. And not getting it back is completely normal. Um, I even had a physician tell one of my clients who had been, uh, who had missed her cycle for four months, unrelated to contest prep. And the OBGYN said, Oh, it's perfectly normal. Happens to people all the time. So just kind of centered around missing that menstrual cycle.
1: Well, you know, um, for the most part, you know, I'll start off by saying I hate using the term normal. And I think most functional um, health people kind of cringe when doctors use that term "normal." I think it's explain; it can be explained, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's normal or okay. Um, we we see menstrual cycles stop um, because hormones are downregulated. You know, whether it be progesterone or estrogen or both, um, this could be due to them being that lean. But most of the time, it's due to what we talked about last episode with regards to over dieting, overtraining and, and stress uh, pulling away that that progesterone uh, and lowering reproductive hormones. So in regards to, you know, three to four weeks out from prep, that to me, that that is not optimal. And I'll put it like that, because we know that we need those reproductive hormones for healthy metabolic function. So four months out of PrEP, that's the entire PrEP. If their metabolism isn't functioning yeah. properly at four months out, we're going to have a fucking rough road ahead of us going into this show. So that to me would already be a red flag that we're probably going to have some, some metabolic resistance and some roadblocks going on. Um, now, if we're seeing results, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but if we stop, stop seeing results and we're not having menstrual cycles, then I, it's clear as day, like, this is obviously, you know, hindering us. And we should probably get labs and talk about postponing the show and addressing this stuff first. Um, as far as post-show, what I would say is an optimal situation would be keeping it till the last month keeping it to about four weeks out that last month, four to six weeks out. I think that that would be optimal. Um, I think it's reasonable to assume that at some point they're going to lose it because they're that lean. Um, and obviously, you know, the supplements that they might be taking will have an effect there. Um, but if they're losing it beforehand, then we know that they're not optimizing fat loss. So I would say the last four to six weeks would be reasonable And then I would say two months post-show, it should be back in range by then because we're feeding them up. We're hopefully supporting um, those reproductive hormones and getting them healthy again. So for me, when it comes to a female's metabolic health, that's one thing that I am paying attention to post-show is, you know, how, how, how soon are they getting that back? And if it's been four months, I'd say we, we've done something wrong. Um, if it, it still hasn't come back in four months since the show. Uh, but usually within two months, I'm having most people get lab work. So I, w- I probably would never let it get to four months. How, First,
0: much, how much does the division that the individual competes in influence those time frames? Would it be different for a bikini competitor versus a women's physique competitor?
1: I certainly think so, mainly because conditioning and how, how lean they are, for one part, um, how much stress they put on their body because of that conditioning. I would safe to say a women's physique competitor is going to be doing more um, than a bikini girl to get in shape. Um, and then, of course, the PEDs, you know, it, it, if they're if they're crashing their estrogen levels with chemicals, then that's going to play a major role in it. Um, and you know, certain anabolics can exacerbate that that progesterone ratio uh, out of balance ratio. So um, I certainly think that the division is gonna gonna play a role in that. Um, but at the end of the day, whatever the division is, I still think that women can have a healthy cycle for the most part till till the very end of a post
0: Especially post-show, I think most women, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, PEDs removed from the equation, most women probably settle around uh, like a pretty similar body fat in the off-season. The differentiator is going to be that in-season conditioning requirement of the specific division. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, you know, <laughs> Every girl kind of has their their happy range for their homeostasis for body fat and stuff like that. I would say the the big determining factor or differentiating factor would be their protocols and prep, and also, you know, lifestyle factors with that. You know, if gut health is off, if their liver health is off, the liver plays a major role in the conversion and metabolization of those hormones. So, you know, if a girl finishes her prep, let's say it wasn't even a, a an intense prep, she wasn't stacking Peds, she wasn't doing all that, but she finishes the prep and she goes drinking, you know, four times a week and causes a lot of liver stress. That's going to impact her her um, her reproductive hormones as well. So that's another factor in there, along with stress and, and stuff like that. So there are a, a few different factors in play, but. If you're doing, if, if, if the coach is doing a responsible reverse diet protocol, not, a lot of those factors should be removed. You shouldn't be stressing the athlete. You should be, you know, slowly but reasonably increasing calories, fat and carbs. Um, they shouldn't be doing a ton of cardio at this point and they should be off the PEDs for the most part. So, you know, as long as you're checking off all those boxes, they they should come back
0: pretty pretty soon. Matt, I'll have you know that bodybuilders are serious athletes. They don't mess around in the off season, and they would never ever think about go drinking four right. days a week. Alcohol, the devil's right. tonic. I don't right. think so, sir. <laughs> Paul, what were you going to say? I think I kind of interrupted you.
3: Uh, I I'm good. I feel like you guys hit all the majors. I mean, I just think the, the biggest consideration is is considering that everybody's an individual, you know, and some people are gonna lose it sooner than others, trying to keep it as long as you can. And like Matt said, if you lose it super duper early, uh, or I'm not gonna say in every situation that's bad, you know, but it yeah. probably isn't it, it's not what you want or want to be the norm for sure, you know. And we we're taught you guys were talking about how, well, like Will it be worse for a bikini competitor or a women's physique competitor? And I was just thinking to myself, we should be replacing Will with like should because we've all just seen all this horrible stuff. I mean, I don't want to say it's all like, I don't want to demonize everything and and say everything's always bad. But I mean, we've seen awful protocols where like people, bikini girls are, you know, taking more things than they probably need or should. And then doing way more cardio than they probably need or should four or five months out. Um, So,
0: yeah. I think it's like a, don't go, don't go chasing it. Right. Don't be like, Oh, lost my cycle. Now preps getting real. Like now we're, now we're getting there.
1: Yeah. I think a lot, uh, not a lot, but I think, you know, in my experience, newer competitors and even newer coaches look at that as a good thing because they yeah. assume she's getting so lean that she's no longer having a cycle. So they're, like, happy about it and, like, celebrate that, oh, man, yeah, she's getting shredded now because she's lost her cycle. And and that obviously is incorrect.
2: I think, um, uh, I think the food and cardio for these girls has probably more to do with them losing their cycle than yeah. – the actual PEDs do I agree. because like we were just talking before the podcast um and like how some girls are advised to eat really low cal and really high cardio for like months on end and like even if they're natural they have harder times getting their cycles back after the fact than the girls that didn't crash diet didn't do a lot of cardio but used PEDs Um, At least that's what I've noticed, like, anecdotally.
1: I, 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 I have a pretty big stance that natural competing in the NPC and the IFBB is actually worse on the body than using responsible protocols, you know, because you will push your body so hard to try to even be competitive against an enhanced person, you'll end up causing more harm than... You would have if you just use a little bit of
2: something. Yeah, like I have a I have a girl right now in peak week, and she just started her cycle, and she it's like an upsetting thing. It's an upsetting thing for the week of the show. But then I kind of told her I was like, "Well, doesn't it make you feel a little bit better that your body is not in complete whack? Like you know, coming out of this competition now, like you're you're still in a pretty good state." as far as like hormones go, she's yeah. a natural competitor, but, um, you know, just with diet breaks and things like that. And like, you know, her cows never got under a crazy amount or anything. And so, you know, it sucked, but I think, but you, I think, I think by the point. end of the week, she'll be fine. But, you know, luckily it started the day of peak week. So yeah, I she'll be, be okay. But,
1: but I think you mm-hmm. just made a great point, which, you know, it's starting to be talked about, but still very under the radar is diet breaks. You know, that that right there could have been this one thing that kept her going and kept her metabolism, you know, in a healthy range or hormones in a healthy range was that you didn't try to do this linear progression of just less food, less food, less food, higher deficit, higher deficit, higher deficit. You paid attention to adaptations, gave her some diet breaks and stuff. And that's that's what needs to be done. And that's like the new age approach that I think more and more coaches are going to get into is um, possibly spreading out a prep a little bit longer. You know, for whatever reason, society always said a prep is 12 to 16 weeks. I don't know who decided that time frame. I don't know where this became the official. very
0: enhanced male bodybuilders came up with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like the official thing, like 16 weeks. That's all you need. No matter how fat you are, 16 weeks will get you there. Um But I, and me personally, and I've seen other coaches talk about this, I'm starting to go for a much longer approach, but with itemized or strategized diet breaks within there. So if someone needs 16 weeks, maybe I'll do a 26 week prep. With diet breaks in in, in between them, and I'm sure people will watch this and say twenty six weeks he's fucking crazy, but you're not understanding that we're literally stopping dieting for four to five days throughout that process
3: yeah that's something that a lot of us do from time to time depending on the situation because I mean that I mean dude that was something that was super popularized by the natural community mm-hmm. you know and all their stuff but uh, had- I didn't want to huh. They had to. They didn't have have any other tools. Um,
0: They were wasting away and turning into castrated
3: skeletons by the time they were on stage. No, but I like what Dom said about how food and cardio, uh, low food and high cardio uh, can be a really big driver. uh, Going back to the menstrual cycle thing. I think that's like where you really have problems too. Is if, if females are loo- losing their menstrual cycle and they're not even that lean yet or haven't lost a significant amount of body fat yet, like that—that's a problem. Oh, for sure. Oh, that's that's, yeah.
0: that's red flags. That's that's danger sirens going off there.
3: Like if this, they're and they're near a normal body fat percentage, or, or yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, because you can just be like, man, this is a long road ahead if we're already having these, these types of issues. This is going to be rough. Um, what's it going to be like, you know, 20 pounds from now?
0: To my knowledge, there's like three big pieces that play into kind of the stress that drives amenorrhea. Low body fat is one of them, which is what most people focus on. But you're losing sight of the like energy availability, uh, which is, you know, how much are you eating? And then how much activity are you doing? So if that's, right. you know, 66% of the equation, if we're just breaking into thirds, like, it's a much bigger driver of the stress that causes amenorrhea than just having low body fat. Right.
1: But yeah. people don't want to hear that because they don't want to stop. They're they're addicted to that. Well, I got to get better so I can't stop cardio and I can't stop dieting. Not realizing that that diet break will get them better. Yeah. You know, or that you or, or just even reverse dieting uh, or pulling back cardio, you know, whatever it may be. But yeah, I, I agree. I would say m- more so than the PEDs, more so than the body fat percentage. It's it's the training and the diet that have the biggest effect by far.
0: And for a whole nother episode, we could talk about the girls who don't even wait to get their cycle back before they jump into that next prep. Jump into that. Yeah, got to get it. All right, folks, we're coming up on an hour here. We might be over an hour. We waited a while to start this recording. There was a lot of bullshitting that went on before we officially hit that record button. And maybe one day, you know, maybe for like a nine ninety nine monthly pass, we'll give you access to the blooper reel if you sign like an NDA or something that says like where you won't call 911 or the DEA or the FDA or the CDC or any of those bodies that'll get us all arrested. Uh, yeah. Matt, we want to say thanks again for coming on for part two. Uh, go ahead and and do one more one more plug, one more reminder. When's that next course going to be? Where can they find information about it? Things like that.
1: So, yeah, I mean, first, let me just say, you know, I appreciate you guys coming, uh, having me on again. And I'd love to be on again. So I won't ghost you guys, I promise. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as far as my class, so the next one is actually this upcoming Sunday, um, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it's it's part one of our comprehensive blood work class. Um, we're gonna you know cover comprehensive labs, top to bottom. We're going to go over um, the differences between normal ranges and optimal ranges, and uh, you know something that we talked about in this podcast today we're also going to go over how to properly prepare for lab work take a couple of days off from training drink plenty of water you know there, there's steps to take in your lab work prep uh to to make sure that you're not having you know falsified numbers or anything like that we want it as accurate as possible for women going at a certain time of month because that's when hormones are going to be at their highest peak um so comparing that um Stuff like that. We're going to go over all that type of information, and hopefully give people a better understanding of labs. Not to discredit doctors or anything like that, or tell people that they should avoid doctors, but just so that they can have a better understanding of their own health and kind of take take their health into their own hands a little bit more than than previously.
0: Love it, love it. That blood work prep is huge. I think that's going to be massive value for people because that is just as important if not more important than actually going out there and and getting the bloods themselves uh paul dom anything you want to leave the people with no i apologize for not talking too much today we had workers
2: at the house and uh this guy this guy is very defensive he weighs a whopping 13 pounds and uh he's a very defensive dog (laughs) 13 pounds of just
0: pure rage
2: yeah i don't know what i did to him i feed him <laughs> i bathe him i do everything for him
3: and it's not enough paul i'd like to apologize for talking too much <laughs> I should probably speak less
1: it's never too much Paul.
3: and we're all going around the bend with some
0: apologies i apologize for not being able to just get to the point of the goddamn question i promise to stop adding so many qualifiers on future episodes but until that future episode arrives folks thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. Do all that YouTube stuff. We'll see you on the next one. And in the meantime,
1: stay gifted. Peace. Bye.